The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missioday.org. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, this is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the proclamation of his promises. So in this series, uh, we're talking about work and how our reflection of God speaks life into the work we are doing. See, I don't wanna ever know anything without it being tethered to the reality of who God is. I have zero desire to study it, understand it, or have further knowledge on it, unless somehow I can discover a way that it tethers itself to the revelation of who God is and how he has created us to be. There's a lot of churches out there that wanna give you uh, uh, some type of life coaching seminar or some type of three steps to a better year, whatever it is, and they try to tether it to God, but it's clunky, if at best, most of the time. I want a deep, intrinsic conviction of how we view our lives and how we operate within them because we see the majesty, the glory, and the beauty of who God has revealed himself to be. And so we're gonna look at how our reflection of God speaks life into the work we are doing because work is a part of who we are as people. Work is a part of who we are as people. We all work. And if we seek to understand this in a more holistic way, we can go as uh, simply as back to Hebrew culture. So the Jews who actually, uh, some of them penned these writings that we read from in the Bible, they understood work in a very holistic nature, and they revered work. You see, when God worked and created, he gave us the Sabbath. On the seventh day, the Bible says, God rested from his work. The Jews took the Sabbath as a very holy time in their life. They still, they still do. And what they did on the Sabbath was they, they took a break from working. So they would even go as far as to prep all the food for the Sabbath day the day before so they didn't have to work in their cooking Right? They saw work as a holistic reality, not a title and a paycheck, but something that they do with their very lives. Some of them can even get very uh, uh, far stretched on the pole of what work is, where if you move, you are working. Your body is working. It's doing things that it shouldn't do on the Sabbath. So you have some that actually go out to these stretches where they will just lay in bed all day because they don't want to work on the Sabbath. Some, and they'll have different, uh, different little categories of, uh, of Hebrew culture where you know this is work, but this isn't, and so forth. And we even see Jesus wrestling with some of that. right? He says, he actually tells, a, he heals a young man on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were flipping their lid because this is work, this is doing something. And he, Jesus challenges them on their view and philosophy and understanding of what work really means. So they, the, what I'm trying to communicate is that Work is a holistic reality for all of us. We all work, even if we don't have titles with paychecks tied to them. We all work. And so th through this series, we're going to be looking at three views of our work and how it parallels with who God has revealed himself to be. So this morning, we're gonna be looking at God as starter. Next week, we're gonna be looking at God as sustainer. And then in the third week, we're gonna see God in the midst 
of struggle. So if work is a part of who we are as people, then we, what we realize must be true is that it is that way because we have been made in God's image. If work is a part of who we are as people, then we must realize that it is a true statement because we have been made in God's image. And so we're gonna take a minute here and I'm gonna try and unpack this to talk about who God is and how he's revealed himself to be. You see, God is God and he has made man in his image. And we're gonna kind of dive into that in here in just a second. But what we see is in his making of man, he has uh, these attributes that some he has given to man to share and some he holds alone. So when we look at the attributes of God, there are some that are incommunicable, which he does not share with us. There are some that are communicable, that he does share with us. So three of them that he does not share with us. These are distinct attributes of who God is. These would be his omniscience, the fact that God knows everything. This is an incommunicable attribute that we don't share with God. We don't have all knowledge and wisdom like he does. So he is omniscient. Another one is he's omnipotent. That means he's all powerful. We are not that way. We don't share that attribute with God. He's also omnipresent. That means that he is everywhere at all times. We don't share that attribute with God either. Those are three incommunicable attributes that God holds alone that he does not share with any aspect of his creation. However, there are communicable attributes. And this is the way that we would understand communicable attributes. They are understood in the ways God has made man to be like himself. Communicable attributes are understood in the ways God has made man to be like himself. These make us distinct from all other creatures in God's creation. We share attributes of God himself in his being and in mental and in moral attributes. So some of the things that we understand is God loves and we love. That's a communicable attribute that we share with God. Uh, When we look at the moral kind of spectrum, we see things like justice and mercy, right? These are things that we share that God has given to us. And so these are some aspects of communicable attribute. And the argument that I'm gonna make this morning is that work is a communicable attribute of God given to his image bearers. You see, we are distinct from all other creation because we share God's image. And, and it's, it's radical to me or, or, or uh, unfathomable to me how people can still try and classify human beings in some type of animal category, right? The fact that we see evolution or other things of that nature as a legitimate type of argument still kind of baffles me because I look at us as people as image bearers of God, and the, the separation is so great. Sure, you, you got a, a gorilla to do sign language, or you got something here, okay, wonderful. You, you can teach a dog tricks, but the reality is when we look at us, I can pull a mini computer out of my pocket that can do the unthinkable and imaginable just 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Right, the way that we build civilization, the way that we create industry, the way that we problem solve, the way that we live in community, the way that we do what we do as human beings screams that there is something unique about us and who we are that separates us from all of creation. Even the scriptures in the New Testament declares that the angels themselves gaze upon us in jealousy because we have something 
that no other part of God's creation has. We're gonna find that in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. So scroll down a little bit with me if you still got your Bible open. If not, it's gonna be on the screen, but it says this. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says, then God said, let us Make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Passages such as Genesis 1, 26 through 27 teaches that we are made in God's image. It presupposes that there was something some things that human beings hold in common with the creator that other creatures do not. We are like God in ways that nothing else in creation is like God. Although we are not so like him that there is no distinction between creator and creature. And so when we look at this passage of scripture, there's some things that we understand that's gonna be, that we see that's gonna be important for down the road. One of this is this reality of this plural singular dichotomy. So what we read right there in the beginning is let us, plural, make man singular in our plural image. This is declaring right here in Genesis one the Trinitarian nature of who God is. God is one God existing in three persons and all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit are present in the creation account. So when God says let us, plural, make man singular in our image, we see the beauty and the, and, and the uh, declaration of the Trinity right here in the creation narrative. So God giving man his own image creates man to be distinct from all other creation, from all other creation. And what we see here in this whole passage of Genesis 1, here's kind of something that we have to understand, is that Genesis 1 is the creation account of how things were made. However, it's like a, it's an aerial view. You can look at it, and as you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you might think that there's some chronological fallacies happening there. That's not what's happening. Genesis 1 is an is a aerial overview of the creation of all things through God himself, right? God said, let there be light. He created day and night. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the dry land and the oceans, the beasts and the birds, all these things. Genesis 2 and 3 then come down intimately and we start seeing the actual kind of play-by-play -play action or the very intricate details of the narration of what's happening in the creation account. So God in this big picture, we see um, uh, him making, him making the, the heavens and the earth, he makes the beasts and the birds, and then he makes man. And what Genesis 1 is declaring is this, that God is the ultimate starter. God is the ultimate starter. Here's why. Because God has created ex nihilio. Ex nihilio is a Latin term, it's a theological phrase that means God has created out of nothing. God has not needed anything to make. God is God himself. You see, before there was matter even to create with, there was God. 
Before there was a universe, there was God. He exists independently of matter and sequence of time. It is not even accurate in full to say that before the universe, there was nothing because even that forces God into a place of time. Before there was, there was God. He is the ultimate starter. And what we see in the creation account is a God who takes nothing and makes You see, we can't even wrap our brains around this idea that God doesn't need stuff to make. He created ex nihilio. He exists even in of himself. He exists before all things were. Before there was, there was God. He needs nothing to sustain him. He has not been made or created in of himself. He is. We see this even in the Exodus narrative when Moses asks, who, do you, who should I say has sent me? God says, tell them I am. That speaks to the eternal, self-sustaining, in need of nothing God that he is. We, are, we as image bearers of God, though, are totally dependent upon matter, materials, and the inspiration of already created things. You see, when we are asked to create, we are immediately dependent upon resources. Our minds race to what we have available to work with. Try it out, I'm gonna give you a few things, but think in your brain, try this out. When we say create music, what happens? If I told you, if I challenged you, create music, what are you gonna do? You're gonna immediately think of instrumentation, You're gonna think of theory. You're gonna think of talent that you know or have around you. You're gonna think of inspiration of other artists and and pieces of music that you have heard or known or practiced. If I asked you to create art, create a piece of art, what are you going to do? You're gonna think of medium. Am I gonna use clay, paint, pencil? Am I gonna use canvas? What am I gonna use? And then you're gonna think of subject matter. Well, what am I gonna paint? What am I going to sculpt? What am I going to draw? Right? And and for some of you who are in the world of technology, if I said create for us pieces of technology that we can use in our society and our culture, what are you immediately going to go to? You're going to go to platform systems and coding language that you know and have access to. You see, God is the only true creator. We are at best great thieves of the one true creator. We are at best great thieves of the one true creator. God is the only true creator, the only true artist, the only true starter. All art, all art is theft. There's nothing original. There's nothing that we haven't gained inspiration from. There's nothing that we can create out of nothing to build our art, to start to create even of our own. At best, we are thieves of the one true creator who is God. So then, If God is the ultimate starter, if God is the ultimate creator, and he has made man to be in his image, to reflect him, to have these communicable attributes of work in us, then what does that mean for God's design of man? We're gonna look at Genesis 2.15. So turn over if you have to, depends on how big or small your font is, but we're gonna be at Genesis 2, 
verse 15, and it says this. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You see, God's design for man always included work. God's design for man always included work. In fact, our work was the first calling and responsibility that God had laid upon us. God made the Adam, right? Adam. And when we study the the Hebrew language of the Adam, the Adam was this man figure who had no real gender. He was mankind in one image. And he God called him Adam, and so he took Adam and he said, here, I've created this garden, and I need you, Adam, to work it. And so he took Adam and placed him in the garden to work it and keep it. And then what we're gonna see as we unpack this narration of the creation story, what we're gonna find out is that quickly and suddenly, Adam discovered he needed help. What did he need help with? He needed help to work. And so God called Adam, the Adam, to go and see all the beasts that he have created. And he said, give them names and see if you can find one of them to be a suitable helper for the task that I have given you. And his search became futile and empty. He said, there is none that could be a helper for me. And so what does God do? He comes in intimately, he puts Adam to sleep, and he takes out a rib, and he creates Eve. And for the first time in the Hebrew language that we study this through Genesis, we have gender. We have the ish, the man, and the isha, the woman. Why was that even necessary? Because there was a task that God had given them to work that could not be completed without a helper. And so this is the beauty of even marriage and sex, that it is the Adam that was the fullness of the representation of the image of God. And when the Ish and the Isha were separated, it is only by the two flesh coming back in covenant union, in the intimacy and joyous gift of sex, that the two become one flesh and the fullness of the image of God is able to be demonstrated and displayed to all creation. You see, sex and marriage is way bigger than we are. It's about the glory of God and the image that he has placed upon us as his creation. But nonetheless, we have to discover that our work was the first calling and responsibility. You see, we were called to work even before we were called to love. In fact, the covenant love of marriage was revealed to us through a provision for work. It is from God's calling of work that we see the necessity of wife, that we see the outpouring of children, that we see the building of civilization, industry, division of labor, all these things that we call good and beautiful. We have to realize that they flowed from a necessary calling and responsibility that God placed on man to work. To work. At first look, when we see this passage of scripture, where it says that put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, we might see that this is simply something to sustain or simply something to care for to make sure that it doesn't die. But at second look, we'll see a deeper portrait of creation, cultivation, and broadening the boundaries of what God has done. Because this is what we have to understand. God, right, he's all powerful, 
He speaks and, and things start existing. Things start being. Things are being created. So we have the morning and the evening, the heavens and the earth, the dry land and the oceans, the beasts, the birds, and man. And then what does God do? God creates a garden. Now, me and my wife were talking at dinner last night. We were asking ourselves the question, how big was this garden? Here's what we do know. The garden was defined the garden had boundaries. It wasn't limitless, it was limited. We don't know if it was the size of a, a neighborhood. I know it was bigger than my backyard garden, right? I, I, kinda, I think I have enough confidence to make that clear statement. However, was it as big of a neighborhood, as a city, as a state? How big was the Garden of Eden? We don't really know, we don't have concrete understanding of that, but what we do know is that it was defined and that it was limited. God makes this garden unique from all of the other creation that he had done for the sole purpose of man to enter into, to cultivate it, to work it, to keep it. You see, we were placed in the midst of God's undercreated work to reflect him. There, there's this thing called... Um, uh, actually, I don't wanna go there yet. I'm gonna go to another place and I'll come circle the wagons back around. But uh, what, what we have to see is that God had placed man in this limited space called Eden. And from Eden, God calls Adam to push the boundaries of the expansion of all that he had made. He had called Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his image. And so there's this reality that God had every intention for Adam and for Eve to push out the boundaries of what he had created Eden to be, to see his glory demonstrated through the earth, to see the earth filled with his image so that earth might be a habitational temple of who he is. Right, God put us in this undercreated work to reflect him. You see, that which he initially creates is not in its final form. God, it was continually at work. He did not make everything to perfection and then just stopped. And all we had to do was operate and exist inside of it. No, God did not create in its final form. He creates in order to employ further artistry and further design. You see, God made, created, but left creation with stretches of empty canvas. And we as image bearers have the opportunity to stretch and push out the boundaries of Eden to see it take over the entire earth. He put in us creation, uh, uh, the, 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 the desire to create, the desire to start, the desire to push the boundaries of what he had made. Again, that which he initially creates we see is not in its final form. He creates in order to employ further artistry, further design, further elements of creating. But if we know the story well, we know that we don't do that. We don't push the boundaries of Eden. In fact, in our rebellion against God, what he does is he seals Eden off from his image bearers. When they rebelled against God and they ate the tree, fruit of the tree of the good, good of not, uh, 12, 
Uh, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't tongue speech, but um, when, he, when, when Adam and Eve rebelled and they ate from the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, God protected his Eden by casting his image bearers out and sealing off what we were supposed to cultivate and push the boundaries of. And that, in a lot of ways, left man to try and create their own Eden. In a fallen world, we replicated. In a fallen, destructive, sinful place, we pushed the boundaries of, and we expanded, and went out. And we express this in a couple of different ways. You see, some of us express the ability to create, but in pride, we seek to obtain the glory. Some of us actually express what God has placed in us as creators, as makers. We express the ability to create, but in pride, we actually seek to obtain the glory. And I have a great story of how this happened. I was going to see a speaker. He's a philosopher and theologian. I highly recommend reading his material. His name is Ravi Zacharias. And I was going to listen to a talk of his. And as he was talking, he shared a story as he was visiting a, a, a medical university in India. He did a Q&A session and one of the students from the university stood up and said, Ravi, what do you have to say about the fact that we are so close to creating life? And Ravi simply replied, thank you for demonstrating it takes intelligence to create life. Man, I love how like sharp-witted he is, right? Somebody who would buckle maybe under such a heavy question. Ravi comes back and says, you, sir, wanna take the glory. You are the one who wants to say, look what I have done. And Ravi understood in that moment of time that that person could do nothing without God. He cannot create ex nihilio. Even whatever they understand as life and, and the medical community combined and what they're trying to express and communicate, Ravi understood in that moment that person could do nothing without God himself. If he had not created it, it could not be. And he said, thank you for proving that it takes intelligence to create. Ravi quickly swung the pendulum of a self-glorifying student who thought that he was a powerful creator to point back to God, who is ultimately the great cosmic starter, the great creator who should receive all of the glory. You see, what we have to understand is that God will have his glory in the end because only that which he has created will truly last. All of the glory of our creation should exalt the glory of God because the things that we will create will burn away. Now, this shouldn't make us be futile in our creating. In fact, what we have to do as the church, as Christians, is in our efforts and striving to create and to start, those things of which we are pursuing should point ultimately to the glory of God rather than to the glory of man so that others may see and gaze upon the things that we create and the things that we start and see the glory of an ultimate creator and that which the Holy Spirit uses to bring life inside of those people as they witness the glory of God in our creating, that will last eternally. That will last eternally, what the Holy Spirit does through our work in the hearts of other peoples will last eternally. And so when we create, when we start, all of the glory of our creation should exalt ultimately the glory of God. 
Others of us, though, some of us, we actually reject the ability to create. So we don't express the ability, we reject the ability to create and place the responsibility unjustly on others. The raw reality is some of us are lazy, we're complainers, and we're unwilling to think through creative solutions on our own. Some of us have gifts and talents from God that we bury in our own apathy, in our unfaithful stewards. Some of us expect others to carry burdens that they are unable or shouldn't carry in the church, in our work culture, and in our communities, and even in our homes. We expect others to carry the burden because we reject God's design for us to create and to start. Think about it in your own work culture. I bet you, you and your work alone can think through right now 20, 30 different things that you wish were different, that you wish would change, that you wish would be better about your job. And how many of you sitting in those chairs thinking about that are thinking about another person whose responsibility it should be to do it? You push off the responsibility to start. You push off the responsibility to create, sometimes unjustly onto other people because we are lazy or apathetic or unwilling to express the design in us to create and start. How many of this happens in our churches? Right, missio is the reality of this unfinished created work, right? we, if God made all that he made and then he made Eden and there was still work to do, then you better know there's like a thousand, 10,000 times more work here to do at Missio. Missio is not what we want it to be. When you look at the pastors and elders at Missio and you ask them about Missio and its shortcomings and weaknesses, we're nowhere near what we wanna be. And we know that. We're, we're not as multi-ethnic as we wanna be. We're not as multi-generational as we wanna be. We're not as merciful as we wanna be. We, we don't have great programs for kids with special needs like we would like to have them. We don't have great communication skills. In fact, most of you know that, right? Because we just say stuff and then we do it and then we're like, yeah, <laughs> you better. And, and, then we, and then we like trained you all to push back super, super hard about the things we do. And I have to have like six hour meetings on, on why, we, why we do communion a little differently. I love that. It's frustrating as all get out. But I actually love it because you guys are trying to p- be your own studiers and knowers of God's word and you're pushing back against us. That's great. I'm thankful that you're not blind, dumb, deaf sheep that just follow whatever we do. But there's a reality that missio is not what we want it to be. And I would ask you the question, are you waiting on me or Pastor Kurt or Pastor Jordan or Pastor Ben or Pastor Mikey or Pastor Kurt to do something about it? Or are you gonna do something about it? Are you gonna be a starter or creator? And I get it, there's times where we have probably stifled or at best uh, uh, um, uh, smothered you with a blanket on what you've wanted to do and we have done unfaithful stewarding of what God's calling in your life. Forgive us, don't give up, let's work it out together, let's keep pressing forward. And some of us in our communities, in our homes, we unjustly put the responsibility on others to start or create. But this is the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is this, that Jesus, the creator, is at work to recreate all we have destroyed to establish a beauty without end. 
Jesus the creator is at work to recreate all we have destroyed and to establish beauty without end. You see, Jesus, God the Son, is the creator of all that we see. And I said we get back to this where I said that plural singular dichotomy where let us plural make man singular in our plural image. Jesus was there at creation. Jesus is equal with God, he is God himself. He has no beginning or created point. He needs nothing to sustain him. And so he is there present in the creation of all that we see. Colossians 1.16 demonstrates this for us. It says this, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And this is what we have to see. Our ability to start or create cannot exist without Christ creating. So all things were created through him. It is through Christ that we have even the ability to start or to create. And then that which we do should point to what? His glory because all things were created also for him. So Jesus God the Son is the creator of all that we see. And Jesus God the Son is the creator of all that will be. Revelation 21, five declares this, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The promise of Jesus to make all things new is a promise that all he is creating will eternally last for his ultimate glory and for the deep joy of his people. See, we, church, have to realize that Christ Jesus is rebuilding what we have destroyed. He is repairing what we have broken, and he is reconciling all that we have lost. Praise God for the gospel. Even in the midst of our unfaithful creating, of our unfaithful starting, we have one who is making all things new for us. And so how should we live this out? I have four ways that we should live this out. Number one is we should all seek to be starters and creators in our jobs. Now, I'm not trying to press back against what Josh Kelly uh, said last week where you're all trying to be LeBron James. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this though. Every one of us is made in the image of God. Every one of us is given the communicable attribute to be able to create and start. We have that in us. We have to be faithful stewards of that which is in us. So we should all seek to be stars and creators in our jobs. Think about the broken places in your job. What are you gonna take responsibility for? What are you gonna express the God-given ability to create and start? Where are there hardships? Where are there broken systems? Where are there holes in your employment, in your work culture? I love this. I was actually um, meeting with some leaders of a, of a place of a, a business that their type of business typically has a poor work culture. People usually are kind of apathetic. Uh, they're kind of, even depression sometimes. It's just not a great, it's one of those places on a list of where you never wanna visit as an adult. It's one of those, right? I think actually the dentist might be number one and then this place is like number two or three. So here's what they did. <clears throat> they created a position called chief culture officer. The only thing that this person, and this might have been done in other businesses, wonderful, cool, I don't, uh, anyway, in this particular place, this person's number one job was to know when people's birthdays were, anniversaries were, throw parties. When people do good jobs, they get recognition. They are there to build a happy and fun 
culture. It's like working at Chuck E. Cheese, but you don't have to be in the hot mouse suit, right? You just get to have pizza and tell people happy birthday all the time. That's a dream job for me. I would love to do that. I don't get enough pizza, uh, and, we, and, and then birthdays. I've lost the point on where I was going with that one. Uh, that's why you should always write the jokes down. No, I'm kidding. Uh, anyway, but look, that was a creative solution to a big problem. How can you see problems in your workplace? How can you see deficiencies in your workplace, in your jobs, and express the image of God and your ability to create and to start? I bet you you can walk out of here with a list of different things you would love to see different. Take ownership and responsibility on that. We should all be starters and creators in our communities. Man, this is a huge one. In our communities, it might be one of the biggest places that we rely on government systems or other different people to do stuff for us. And our communities are desperate for people to have creative solutions or to start things that demonstrate the glory of God to the people in them. Maybe you're in a place where there's a, a heavy amount of older people, right? People who uh, are like, really old, right, and they need uh, care. Maybe they're shut-ins, maybe they don't have family nearby, maybe they need help getting to and from places, maybe they just need someone to sit with on the front porch and talk to, right? And the new neighborhood that we just moved in, there's a high level of immigration uh, residents. They've come in to work for uh, uh, different companies or maybe they've just you know, gotten their uh, citizenship here or they're working toward getting their citizenship here. But we're trying to think of ways that we can actually engage them uh, to be able to build community because that's an extremely hard place to build community. Um, there might be all kinds of different places. Wherever you live, let me tell you this, sin is present. Wherever you live, brokenness is present. It looks different, it might look a little bit polished, but at the end of the day, it's just a polished turd. That's all that it is. And you break through the surface of that polished turd, and you will find, that one was even worse. But however, you have to realize sin reigns everywhere. Sin doesn't just look like downtown OTR. Right, where, where they're wearing their sin on their sleeve. There's places, as we look in the northern suburbs, their sin is much harder to discover, but at some, some point, it's actually more devastating once it is. We should all seek to be starters and creators in our homes. This is a huge one for, uh, for all of us because there's a lot of times, especially women, can get caught in this reality of once you maybe you become or you desire to become a stay-at-home mom, like, where is that ability to be expressed, to be a creator and a starter? And I want you to know that there is, in, you only will put uh, uh, refining like, or uh, these kind of constricting elements on yourself. Because when we look at the Proverbs 31 woman, right? In the book of Proverbs chapter 31, there's this explanation of a godly woman. She is a starter. She is a creator. She is buying and selling fields. She has a product that she's taking to sell at the merchants. She has workers underneath of her that she is uh, 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 overseeing and, and helping cultivate business. She's starting and she is creating. You, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you get to create all kinds of things. I love to see all the little small businesses that appear on my Facebook page from stay-at-home moms 
here at Missio who don't just say, oh, I'm, I, I can't now reflect this image of God because I'm a stay-at-home mom, but they push the boundaries of what they're able to do. And, and then there's not even just the business ones. There's the moms who are the starters. We have two moms in our community that started this thing called Summer in the Park. It's awesome where every Thursday or every other Thursday, they're at a park to meet other stay-at-home moms so that they can build community and evangelize them with the gospel of Jesus. That's being a starter. That's being a creator. That's not saying, that's saying I'm not gonna sit here in my house and be isolated and alone because I'm a stay-at-home mom. It's I'm going to reflect the ability to create and start in me so that others might be blessed by it. And then fathers, men, husbands, we can be starters in our home. Let me tell you this really quick. It is, uh, one, one, of, one of the saddest things about our culture is this. It is not the responsibility of, of, academic, uh, of the academic community, teachers, principals, whatever it might be, to fix the problems of our children. We have broken homes because we have created broken homes. We have problems with our children because we have not been starters or creators to change the very culture that's happening in our homes. It is not their responsibility to fix it. It's not their responsibility to have your children behave well. It's not their responsibility to have your children even get good grades. It is your responsibility. Fathers, you're the principal of that home. Fathers, you're the starters and creators of culture. If you don't like the way dinner time's going, change it. If you don't like the way discipleship's going, change it. If you don't like the way your, ch your children are behaving, discipline them and change it. You have to be a starter and a creator for the culture that you want in your home. You're raising these children, it's your responsibility. There's too many times that men are completely lazy and apathetic to the culture that's being developed in their homes and then 10 years goes by and they're scratching their heads figuring what went wrong and who is gonna fix it. We are, the, we are the lazy ones that I talked about that unjustly put the responsibility of starting and creating on other people. And then also, we should all seek to be starters and creators in the church. Man, we should be starters and creators, and, and, and I love seeing people who say, hey, I see something missing, and I want to do something about it. Uh, we, we have uh, women who are starting Bible studies all throughout Missio, and it's awesome. My wife gets to participate in one. Women's ministry has been a big need, and it's been an outcry for years here at Missio, and, and let me tell you something. I'm super excited about some of the things, and I've done my fair share of damage of people who have tried to start things, and in my sense, here's where I'm gonna repent. This is why I wanna repent this morning, is that I've sought to see the glory for myself in a lot of times, and in that pursuit of glory, I have destroyed the starting and creating beauty of other people in this church. I'm gonna do my best to repent from that. And I'm glad that Jesus doesn't just leave that dead where my hands have tarnished, but he's raising up other women now in the church to see a women's ministry happen. And it's beautiful. And, the, and I'm having meetings with them, and I'm uh, helping them, I'm coaching them, and I'm assisting them in healthier ways than I've ever personally done, I think. At least that's my own assessment. But uh, uh, I'm thankful for women who say, man, there's a hole there, there's something missing. There's something that we need here at the church. We're gonna take responsibility and start and create it, and it's beautiful, and I love it. 